Chapter 9, Part 3 of Principles of Geology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Samuel Christian Stanley. Principles of Geology by Charles Lyell. Chapter 9, Part 3. Cetacea The absence of cetacea from rocks older than the Eocene has been frequently adduced as lending countenance to the theory of the very late appearance of the highest class of vertebrata on the earth. Professor Sedgwick possesses in the Cambridge Museum a mass of ankylosed cervical vertebrae of a whale, which he found in drift clay near Ely and which he has no doubt was washed out of the Kimmeridge clay, an upper member of the oolite. According to Professor Owen, it exhibits well-marked specific characters, distinguishing it from all other known recent or fossil cetacea. Dr. Letty, of Philadelphia, has lately described two species of cetacea of a new genus, which he has called Priscodelphinus from the green sand of New Jersey which corresponds in age with the English chalk or the Cretaceous strata above the galt. The specimens consist of dorsal and cervical vertebrae. Even in the Eocene strata of Europe, the discovery of cetaceans has never kept pace with that of land quadrupeds. The only instance cited in Great Britain is a species of monodon from the London clay of doubtful authenticity as to its geological position. On the other hand, the gigantic Zeuglodon of North America occurs abundantly in the Middle Eocene strata of Georgia and Alabama, from which as yet no bones of land quadrupeds have been obtained. In the present imperfect state, then, of our information, we can scarcely say more than that the cetacea seem to have been scarce in the secondary and primary periods. It is quite conceivable that when aquatic saurians, some of them carnivorous, like the Ichiosaurus, were swarming in the sea, and when there were large herbivorous reptiles, like the Iguanodon, on the land, the class of reptiles may, to a certain extent, have superseded the cetacea and discharged their functions in the animal economy. That mammalia had been created long before the epoch of the Kimmeridge clay is shown by the microlestes of the trias before alluded to, and by the stones-field quadrupeds from the inferior oolite. And we are bound to remember, whenever we infer the poverty of the flora or fauna of any given period of the past, from the small number of fossils occurring in ancient rocks, that it has been evidently no part of the plan of nature to hand down to us a complete or systematic record of the former history of the animate world, we may have failed to discover a single shell, marine or freshwater, or a single coral, or bone in certain sandstones, such as that of the valley of the Connecticut, where the footprints of bipeds and quadrupeds abound. But such failure may have arisen, not because the population of the land or sea was scanty at that era, but because in general the preservation of any relics of the animals or plants of former times is the exception to a general rule. Time, so enormous, 
as that contemplated by the geologist, may multiply exceptional cases till they seem to constitute the rule, and so impose on the imagination as to lead us to infer the non-existence of creatures of which no monuments happen to remain. Professor Forbes has remarked that few geologists are aware how large a proportion of all known species of fossils are founded on single specimens, while a still greater number are founded on a few individuals discovered in one spot. This holds true not only in regard to animals and plants inhabiting the land, the lake, and the river, but even to a surprising number of the marine mollusca, articulata, and radiata. Our knowledge, therefore, of the living creation of any given period of the past may be said to depend in a great degree on what we commonly call chance, and the casual discovery of some new localities rich in peculiar fossils may modify or entirely overthrow all our previous generalizations. Upon the whole, then, we derive this result from a general review of the fossils of the successive tertiary strata, namely, that since the Eocene period, there have been several great changes in the land quadrupeds inhabiting Europe, probably not less than five complete revolutions, during which there has been no step whatever made in advance, no elevation in the scale of being, so that had man been created at the commencement of the Eocene era, he would not have constituted a greater innovation on the state of the animal creation previously established than now. When we believe him to have begun to exist at the close of the Pliocene, the views, therefore, which I proposed in the first edition of this work, January 1830, in opposition to the theory of progressive development, do not seem to me to require material modification, notwithstanding the large additions since made to our knowledge of fossil remains. These views may be thus briefly stated. From the earliest period at which plants and animals can be proved to have existed, there have been a continual change going on in the position of land and sea, accompanied by great fluctuations of climate. To these ever-varying geographical and climatal conditions, the state of the animate world has been unceasingly adapted. No satisfactory proof has yet been discovered of the gradual passage of the earth from a chaotic to a more habitable state, nor of any law of progressive development governing the extinction and renovation of species, and causing the fauna and flora to pass from an embryonic to a more perfect condition, from a single to a more complex organization. The principle of adaptation to which I have alluded appears to have been analogous to that which now peoples the Arctic, temperate, and tropical regions, contemporaneously with distinct assemblages of species and genera, or which, independently of mere temperature, gives rise to a predominance of the marsupial or didelphous tribe of quadrupeds in Australia, of the placental or monodelphous tribe in Asia and Europe, or which causes a profusion of reptiles without mammalia in the Galapagos archipelago, and of mammalia without reptiles in Greenland. Recent Origin of Man If, then, the popular theory of the successive development of the animal and vegetable world 
from the simplest to the most perfect forms, rests on a very insecure foundation. It may be asked whether the recent origin of man lends any support to the same doctrine, or how far the influence of man may be considered as such a deviation from the analogy of the order of things previously established, as to weaken our confidence in the uniformity of the course of nature. Antecedently to investigation, we might reasonably have anticipated that the vestiges of man would have been traced back at least as far as those modern strata in which all the testacea and a certain number of the mammalia are of existing species. For of all the mammalia, the human species is the most cosmopolite and perhaps more capable than any other of surviving considerable vicissitudes in climate and in the physical geography of the globe. No inhabitant of the land exposes himself to so many dangers on the waters as man, whether in a savage or a civilized state. And there is no animal, therefore, whose skeleton is so liable to become embedded in lacustrine or submarine deposits. Nor can it be said that his remains are more perishable than those of other animals. For in ancient fields of battle, as Cuvier has observed, the bones of men have suffered as little decomposition as those of horses which were buried in the same grave. But even if the more solid parts of our species had disappeared, the impression of their form would have remained engraven on the rocks, as have the traces of the tenderest leaves of plants and the soft integuments of many animals, works of art, moreover, composed of the most indestructible materials, would have outlasted almost all the organic contents of sedimentary rocks. Edifices, and even entire cities, have, within the times of history, been buried under volcanic ejections, submerged beneath the sea, or engulfed by earthquakes. And had these catastrophes been repeated throughout an indefinite lapse of ages, the high antiquity of man would have been inscribed in far more legible characters on the framework of the globe than are the forms of the ancient vegetation which once covered the islands of the northern ocean, or of those gigantic reptiles which at still later periods peopled the seas and rivers of the northern hemisphere. Dr. Pritchard has argued that the human race have not always existed on the surface of the earth, because, quote, the strata of which our continents are composed were once a part of the ocean's bed. Mankind had a beginning, since we can look back to the period when the surface on which they lived began to exist. Quote. This proof, however, is insufficient, for many thousands of human beings now dwell in various quarters of the globe where marine species lived within the times of history, and, on the other hand, the sea now prevails permanently over large districts once inhabited by thousands of human beings. Nor can this interchange of sea and land ever cease while the present causes are in existence. Terrestrial species, therefore, might be older than the continents which they inhabit, and aquatic species of higher antiquity than the lakes and seas which they now people. But so far as our interpretation of physical movements has yet gone, we have every reason to infer that the human race is extremely modern, even when compared to the larger number of species now our contemporaries on the earth, 
and we may, therefore, ask whether his creation can be considered as one step in a supposed progressive system by which the organic world has advanced slowly from a more simple to a more complex and perfect state. If we concede, for a moment, the truth of the proposition that the sponge, the cephalopod, the fish, the reptile, the bird, and the mammifer have followed each other in regular chronological order, the creation of each class being separated from the other by vast intervals of time, should we be able to recognize, in man's entrance upon the earth, the last term of one in the same series of progressive developments? In reply to this question, it should first be observed that the superiority of man depends not on those faculties and attributes which he shares in common with the inferior animals, but on his reason, by which he is distinguished from them. When it is said that the human race is of far higher dignity than were any pre-existing beings on the earth, it is the intellectual and moral attributes of our race, rather than the physical which are considered. And it is by no means clear that the organization of man is such as would confer a decided preeminence upon him if, in place of his reasoning powers, he was merely provided with such instincts as are possessed by the lower animals. If this be admitted, it would not follow, even if there were sufficient geological evidence in favor of the theory of progressive development, that the creation of man was the last link in the same chain. For the sudden passage from an irrational to a rational animal is a phenomenon of a distinct kind from the passage from the more simple to the more perfect forms of animal organization and instinct. To pretend that such a step, or rather leap, can be part of a regular series of changes in the animal world is to strain analogy beyond all reasonable bounds. Introduction of Man to what extent a change in the system. But setting aside the question of progressive development, another, and a far more difficult one, may arise out of the admission that man is comparatively of modern origin. Is not the interference of the human species, it may be asked, such a deviation from the antecedent course of physical events that the knowledge of such a fact tends to destroy all our confidence in the uniformity of the order of nature? both in regard to time past and future, if such an innovation could take place after the earth had been exclusively inhabited for thousands of ages by inferior animals, why should not other changes as extraordinary and unprecedented happen from time to time? If one new cause was permitted to supervene, differing in kind and energy from any before in operation, why may not others have come into action at different epochs? Or what security have we that they may not arise hereafter? And if such be the case, how can the experience of one period, even though we are acquainted with all the possible effects of the thin existing causes, be a standard to which we can refer all natural phenomena of other periods? Now these objections would be unanswerable if adduced against one who was contending for the absolute uniformity throughout all time of the succession of sublunary events, if, for example, he was disposed to indulge in the philosophical reveries 
of some Egyptian and Greek sects, who represented all the changes both of the moral and material world as repeated at distant intervals, so as to follow each other in their former connection of place and time. For they compared the course of events on our globe to astronomical cycles, and not only did they consider all sublunary affairs to be under the influence of the celestial bodies, but they taught that on the earth, as well as in the heavens, the same identical phenomena recurred again and again in a perpetual vicissitude. The same individual men were doomed to be reborn and to perform the same actions as before. The same arts were to be invented and the same cities built and destroyed. The Argonautic expedition was destined to sail again with the same heroes, and Achilles with his Myrmidons to renew the combat before the walls of Troy. Alter erit tum Typhis, et altera quae vehat argo dilectos eroas. Erunt etiam altera bela, atque eterum ad trojam magnus mititer Achilles. The geologist, however, may condemn these tenets as absurd without running into the opposite extreme, and denying that the order of nature has, from the earliest periods, been uniform in the same sense in which we believe it to be uniform at present, and expect it to remain so in future. We have no reason to suppose that when man first became master of a small part of the globe, a greater change took place in its physical condition than is now experienced when districts, never before inhabited, become successfully occupied by new settlers. When a powerful European colony lands on the shores of Australia and introduces at once those arts which it has required many centuries to mature, when it imports a multitude of plants and large animals from the opposite extremity of the earth, and begins rapidly to extirpate many of the indigenous species, a mightier revolution is effected in a brief period than the first entrance of a savage horde, or their continued occupation of the country for many centuries can possibly be imagined to have produced. If there be no impropriety in assuming that the system is uniform, when disturbances so unprecedented occur in certain localities, we can with much greater confidence apply the same language to those primeval ages when the aggregate number and power of the human race, or the rate of their advancement in civilization, must be supposed to have been far inferior. In reasoning on the state of the globe immediately before our species was called into existence, we must be guided by the same rules of induction as when we speculate on the state of America in the interval that elapsed between the introduction of man into Asia, the supposed cradle of our race, and the arrival of the first adventurers on the shores of the New World. In that interval, we imagine the state of things to have gone on according to the order now observed in regions unoccupied by man. Even now, the waters of lakes, seas, and the great ocean, which teem with life, may be said to have no immediate relation to the human race, to be portions of the terrestrial system of which man has never taken, nor ever can take possession, so that the greater part of the inhabited surface of the planet may still remain as insensible to our presence 
as before any isle or continent was appointed to be our residence. If the barren soil around Sydney had at once become fertile upon the landing of our first settlers, if, like the happy isles whereof the poets have given such glowing descriptions, those sandy tracts had begun to yield spontaneously an annual supply of grain, we might then, indeed, have fancied alterations still more remarkable in the economy of nature to have attended the first coming of our species into the planet. Or if, when a volcanic island like Ischia was, for the first time, brought under cultivation by the enterprise and industry of a Greek colony, the internal fire had become dormant, and the earthquake had remitted its destructive violence. There would have been some ground for speculating on the debilitation of the subterranean forces when the earth was first placed under the dominion of man. But after a long interval of rest, the volcano bursts forth again with renewed energy, annihilates one half of the inhabitants, and compels the remainder to emigrate. The course of nature remains evidently unchanged, and, in like manner, we may suppose the general condition of the globe, immediately before and after the period when our species first began to exist, to have been the same, with the exception only of man's presence. The modifications in the system of which man is the instrument do not, perhaps, constitute so great a deviation from previous analogy as we usually imagine. We often, for example, form an exaggerated estimate of the extent of our power in extirbating some of the inferior animals, and causing others to multiply, a power which is circumscribed within certain limits, and which, in all likelihood, is by no means exclusively exerted by our species. The growth of human population cannot take place without diminishing the numbers or causing the entire destruction of many animals. The larger beasts of prey, in particular, give way before us, but other quadrupeds of smaller size and innumerable birds, insects, and plants, which are inimical to our interests, increase in spite of us, some attacking our food, others our raiment and persons, and others interfering with our agricultural and horticultural labors. We behold the rich harvest which we have raised by the sweat of our brow, devoured by myriads of insects, and are often as incapable of arresting their depredations as of staying the shock of an earthquake or the course of a stream of lava. A great philosopher has observed that we can command nature only by obeying her laws, and this principle is true even in regard to the astonishing changes which are superinduced in the qualities of certain animals and plants by domestication and garden culture. I shall point out in the third book that we can only effect such surprising alterations by assisting the development of certain instincts, or by availing ourselves of that mysterious law of their organization by which individual peculiarities are transmissible from one generation to another. It is probable, from these and many other considerations, that as we enlarge our knowledge of the system, we shall become more and more convinced that the alterations caused by the interference of man deviate far less from
from the analogy of those affected by other animals than is usually supposed. We are often misled, when we institute such comparisons, by our knowledge of the wide distinction between the instincts of animals and the reasoning power of man, and we are apt hastily to infer that the effects of a rational and irrational species, considered merely as physical agents, will differ almost as much as the faculties by which their actions are directed. It is not, however, intended that a real departure from the antecedent course of physical events cannot be traced in the introduction of man. If that latitude of action which enables the brutes to accommodate themselves in some measure to accidental circumstances could be imagined to have been at any former period so great, that the operations of instinct were as much diversified as are those of human reason, it might, perhaps, be contended that the agency of man did not constitute an anomalous deviation from the previously established order of things. It might have been said that the earth's becoming at a particular period the residence of human beings was an era in the moral, not in the physical world, that our study and contemplation of the earth and the laws which govern its animate productions ought no more to be considered in the light of a disturbance or deviation from the system than the discovery of the satellites of Jupiter should be regarded as a physical event affecting those heavenly bodies. Their influence in advancing the progress of science among men and in aiding navigation and commerce was accompanied by no reciprocal action of the human mind upon the economy of nature in those distant planets. And so the earth might be conceived to have become, at a certain period, a place of moral discipline and intellectual improvement to man, without the slightest arrangement of a previously existing order of change in its animate and inanimate productions. The distinctness, however, of the human from all other species, considered merely as an efficient cause in the physical world, is real. For we stand in a relation to contemporary species of animals and plants widely different from that which other irrational animals can ever be supposed to have held to each other. We modify their instincts, relative numbers, and geographical distribution in a manner superior in degree, and in some respects very different in kind from that in which any other species can affect the rest. Besides, the progressive movement of each successive generation of men causes the human species to differ more from itself in power at two distant periods than any one species of the higher order of animals differs from another. The establishment, therefore, by geological evidence, of the first intervention of such a peculiar and unprecedented agency, long after other parts of the animate and inanimate world existed, affords grounds for concluding that the experience during thousands of ages of all the events which may happen on this globe would not enable a philosopher to speculate with confidence concerning future contingencies. If, then, an intelligent being, after observing the order of events for an indefinite series of ages, had witnessed at last so wonderful an innovation as this, to what extent would his belief in the regularity of the system be weakened? 
Would he cease to assume that there was permanency in the laws of nature? Would he no longer be guided in his speculations by the strictest rules of induction? To these questions it may be answered that, had he previously presumed to dogmatize respecting the absolute uniformity of the order of nature, he would undoubtedly be checked by witnessing this new and unexpected event, and would form a more just estimate of the limited range of his own knowledge, and the unbounded extent of the scheme of the universe. But he would soon perceive that no one of the fixed and constant laws of the animate or inanimate world was subverted by human agency, and that the modifications now introduced for the first time were the accompaniments of new and extraordinary circumstances, and those not of a physical but of a moral nature. The deviation permitted would also appear to be as slight as was consistent with the accomplishment of the new moral ends proposed, and to be in a great degree temporary in its nature, so that, whenever the power of the new agent was withheld, even for a brief period, a relapse would take place to the ancient state of things, the domesticated animal, for example, recovering in a few generations its wild instinct, and the garden flower and fruit tree reverting to the likeness of the parent stock. Now, if it would be reasonable to draw such inferences with respect to the future, we cannot but apply the same rules of induction to the past. We have no right to anticipate any modifications in the results of existing causes in time to come, which are not conformable to analogy, unless they be produced by the progressive development of human power, or perhaps by some other new relations which may hereafter spring up between the moral and material worlds. In the same manner, when we speculate on the vicissitudes of the animate and inanimate creation in former ages, we ought not to look for any anomalous results. Unless where man has interfered, or unless clear indications appear of some other moral source of temporary derangement. End of chapter 9, part 3